Before the start of our podcast, I have a few announcements regarding Radio Siam's news. First, we are excited to announce that Radio Siam's is now produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can see all AAA-sponsored podcasts at AmericanAnthro.org. Second, the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies has a shiny new website. The URL is the same, siams.cornell.edu, and you can find a link to the Radio Siams archive on the main page. Finally, as of the start of the 2017-2018 academic year, I, Katie Gerald, am stepping down as Assistant Director of SIAMS. I will be handing over the reins to the capable and talented Ailish Monahan, so you can expect to hear her voice announcing new episodes. It has been a great honor to serve as SIAMS Assistant Director for the past two years, and I wish my successor the best of luck at her new post. And now, stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On May 4, 2017, archaeologist Felipe Rojas from Brown University met a panel of Siam students and faculty to discuss being mountain in ancient Anatolia. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Good afternoon, and uh, welcome to a, uh, another edition of the SIAMS podcast. My name is Ben Anderson. I'm a member of the SIAMS faculty and teach in the Department of History of Art here at Cornell. And our guest for this podcast is Felipe Rojas, who is Assistant Professor of Archaeology at the Joukowsky Institute and in the Department of uh, Egyptology and Assyriology at Brown University. And last evening, Felipe gave a talk in the SIAMS lecture series on the topic of being mountain in ancient Anatolia. And for the podcast, we'll be discussing, in addition to some of the points that he raised, two recent essays. Uh, the first is called Archaeophilia, a Diagnosis and Ancient Case Studies. That's a chapter in a volume that Felipe and I edited called um, Antiquarianism's Contact Conflict Comparison, which is forthcoming in a couple of weeks in the Joukowsky Institute publication series with books. We also looked at a recent essay um, by Felipe and Valeria Sergenkova called The Smell of Time, Olfactory Associations with the Past in Pre-Modern Greece. Uh, that is published in a Dumbarton Oaks volume edited by Margaret Mullet and Susan Harvey called Knowing Bodies, Passionate Souls sense perceptions in Byzantium. I'll begin the discussion with a very general question. Actually, I'll start by reading the first sentence from the Archaeophilia essay. Uh, Felipe writes here, this paper was incited by the suspicion that the ways in which humans throughout the world have used material remains to explore and explain the past have been, and hopefully still are, more varied than archaeologists or historians usually recognize. So, Felipe, let's grant that that is true. Um, what good would it do archaeologists or historians to recognize the greater diversity of these human responses to the um, past? Um, thank you for, I'm happy to be here, and, and, and thank you for the question. I, um, I think that one thing it would do would be to make us aware that 
uh, our own manner of engagement with things and our own understanding of how things are or not traces of the past is is peculiar and uh, and is and has in some ways a a shallow temporal depth um, and that people today and at other times and in other parts of the world have uh, made sort of archaeological explorations of or explorations that are similar to those of archaeology in, in, in very different ways. And so I, I think it, just in terms of, of making us more modest, I think that that is one of the possible contributions of, of this. So my name is Jenny Carrington and I'm a PhD student in classical archaeology. And um, continue maybe on this article. So you had these three questions about sort of how people imagine their relationship with the past. And I also wanted to ask you if you saw in these various anecdotes sort of trends in how people also frame their expertise about those materials. So not just the different associations, but also how they're saying my relationship with the past is other people's. Right, yeah, I think I think that is that is central to this problem. Um, and I think it is not um, simply now that this is happening, that again, in other times and in other places, the question of expertise and expertise about things and expertise about how the past uh, lies in things, uh, those questions have been important. And we as archaeologists, and especially as historians of archaeology, tend to recognize, let's say, predecessors or antecessors who have similar interests to ours, but not so much people whose engagement with things is difficult to recognize because we ourselves don't ourselves don't do it. Uh, ultimately, it's a question of of of, of power and of uh, epistemological asymmetries. There are certain ways of knowing that we consider um, valuable, and there are ways of knowing that we consider kooky or wacky. Or <laughs> so, I, so I think it is central to this investigation, um, and. So I think in, in the case of classical antiquity, we're very willing to engage with Herodotus and with Pausanias and with Strabo and with people who we could sort of recognize as historians and sort of recognize as antiquarians, as geographers, without um, often acknowledging that they themselves were in dialogue with a much wider community of people that we don't consider any of those things. And that the, I think the, the, the flow of information between these erudite intellectuals and traditions that we would call folkloric or vernacular is, is, is very intense. And the distance between somebody like Pausanias and somebody that we would just consider a folklorist is, is not very big. Um, hello, my name is Anastasia Kutsoglu. I'm in my third year of my PhD program in anthropology. Um, in your talk yesterday, when you were discussing animism in mountains and mountainscapes, uh, you covered a time period of about 2,000 years um, going into early antiquity. Um, is there a reason, aside from being an archaeologist, that you chose to push your temporal scope backwards um, rather than forwards? Um, and or would you consider uh, incorporating more recent ethnographic or ethno-historic uh, evidence into your work? It's a very interesting question. Uh, ben and I just uh, organized a conference in Bogota, Colombia, where I'm from. And 
and I got exactly the same question from 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 a Colombian who had no interest at all in Anatolia. Um, and I have to confess that part of the reason that I don't extend that far into more recent periods is my own ignorance of of certain chunks of Turkish history, especially medieval Turkish history, um, that is a is a consequence of I think contemporary disciplinary boundaries that I, as an Anatolianist, as a classicist, I don't get to learn uh, certainly about about Ottoman Anatolia. And I think that in, in some ways, um, I should my I should put my money where my mouth is and and, mm -hmm. and 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 do more medieval and 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 contemporary um, ethnographic studies and I would be all for it and I, I think if, if in, in, in future archaeological projects I want to have much more intense um, investigation of, of more recent periods. I was I was a, a member of the Aphrodisias regional survey and it's a it's sort of a, a, a big academic publication and it was a, a five-year project and one of the criticisms that our reviewers had of this book was precisely that and I don't think we were necessarily hiding the medieval or, or recent past, is that we really didn't know about it in a in a very sort of material, immediate way, that we wouldn't know what to do with some of this evidence. Uh, and so, for example, I, 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 I did some of the architecture and I did mo most of the architectural drawings. And I, I remember drawing lots and lots of Ottoman cisterns and, and sort of wanting to know more and, and I was a grad student so I, so I didn't do more but 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 I, but I think that um, I had I had to finish a dissertation but um, but I would like to engage with more more recent uh, material and I think it's just super rich I mean I think the, the um, just Ottoman literature is, is full of of material that that would be ideal for this investigation I'm Kathleen Garland. I'm a second year in the classics department here. Um, and my question is also about your talk. Um, you mentioned briefly that it's it's hard to define a mountain spatially. And so maybe we could talk about that, but also perhaps other ways of defining what it is to be mountain um, in a material or sensorial way. So I was thinking of Ovid's description of echo um, who turns into a voice, but he also says that her bones turn into stones. So the sort of bare rock being a necessary precondition to have that um, echoing sense of isolation and wilderness could be uh, a way to, to sort of marry your sensorial interests with this idea of mountain. I mean, I think it's, I think Astrid's question of, of what I think to be a mountain is, is important and, and, and and interesting and perhaps essential to this investigation. It is a it is a tricky question to ask, and I think part of the problem is that it probably changes over time. What not just what you consider a mountain, but what specific mountains are. So what Latmos is or what Tmolus is. Um, in a way. This is a very preliminary moment in this investigation, and I think 
in a way, what I wanted to do initially was just to cast a, a wide net and try to get lots of examples and um, and um, if if I were to proceed, I I I think that that I would need to define mountains at least in in in, in different periods and experientially could be a way of doing it and so. Perhaps a mountain can be defined as a certain amount of space that makes you tired if you walk it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a way that, that 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 like yeah like the Anatolian central plains are 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 sloped, but they're not a mountain. I mean, you you wouldn't get tired walking up <laughs> them. Uh, you would get really tired walking up Ergias. Um, so so perhaps along those lines of uh, and actually almost phenomenological approach to the definition of mountain could help. I was talking to a frequent collaborator of mine today and I and I said, well, several people asked me this question and I find it hard to hard to define. And she said, well, who cares? It's just what what ancient, the ancients called mountain. But that's that sort of shifting the the, the the same problem. It's like well, what do they call mountains? <laughs> um, it's I mean I said this yesterday, but I think it's interesting that I don't know what this is worth, but I think it is kind of interesting that that in Hittite texts, the the way you mark mountains with a uh, with a logogram and and you you rarely say the word for mountain. This is very organized, <laughs> <laughs> like a clock. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jessica Plant. I'm a first year in the history of art department. And maybe on a similar note, I was wondering about the specificity of some of your case studies and the historical claims in the smell of time. So with your co-author, you trace smell in Roman, Byzantine, and Ottoman Greek contexts. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on the connections um, between those regional and cultural um, case studies in your example. And is this kind of a continuous Greek cultural imagination that you're building, or is it an imaginative strategy that all types of communities can draw on using smell to reach to some kind of historical local idea. Right. So I, there are sort of two questions. Um, I think that I mean I, I think this, but I, a lot of other people, including my my colleague Yanis Hamilakis and other people who have worked on these issues, think this smell is one of the sort of conventional Western senses that has been least investigated in archaeological and historical circles. And certainly for, for classical antiquity, it's, 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 it's really sorely un, un, under-investigated. Um, but as humans, <laughs> we all know that it's, that it's an important and, and, and just normal way in which we communicate with each other, in which we understand the world. Um, and um, and I think that that olfactory communities, communities of, of, of people who find a, certain, a, a sense of identity through olfactory stimuli is, is, is happening everywhere. And, and, and there, there are different ways of thinking about this, but it's happening today and it happened in the past. I think what's, 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 what I think is interesting about my own article is, is the possibility of, of identifying um, Communities that think that an olfactory trace has uh, analogous weight 
to, let's say, a material trace such as a stone or a building or, or something that we today as an archaeologist, as archaeologists, would recognize as archaeological evidence. Um, and I think it, that it's again in that, in that moment of epistemological asymmetry where one group of people is, is saying, well, the past can be accessed through olfactory means, and another group of people is saying, well, not so sure. That's a moment of interest to me. Um, regarding sort of the, 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 the huge diachronic scope, I'm, I'm interested in doing that sort of investigation. The talk yesterday was, again, perhaps reckless in its, in its breadth. The, the, the article is perhaps reckless in its, in its breadth, but I, I think that the Eastern Mediterranean and Anatolia in particular has been, uh, I think it's unfortunate that it's so uh, rigidly periodized and that as a classicist, you know very little about the Hittites, you know very little about Byzantinists, and, and that is um, just harmful to the investigation of, of a place, of any place. Um, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> uh, my name is Rebecca Gerdes. I'm a first year PhD student in classical archaeology. And to kind of continue with the theme of the, the smell of time, um, I noticed in the examples you used, most of them are bad smells. Yeah. Um, except for, I think there's one case where there's an example of a good smell being remembered. Is there something about bad smells or human memory that makes it linger longer? Um, it's, it's an interesting question, and I am not sure I have a very good answer for it. So it's true, most of them seem to be described as, as fetid or, or disgusting. Uh, but not, not all of them. And uh, the, I mean, one of the interesting things is that some of them are described both as fragrant and as fetid, and that seems interesting. Mm -hmm. That that you could see, well, you could, it's very obvious that it's a cultural construct construction of what you understand as one thing or the other. Um, I think that in many of the cases I studied there there seems to be a tension between uh, very local communities and, let's say, translocal experts such as Pausanias or, or other people uh, passing through the landscape. Mm. And again, not, not, not all of them are, are, are fetid because Evliya Chelebi, the Ottoman traveler, has this... Uh, remarkably precise description of the types of smells he smells in the caves in Athens. And so, some of them are, are, are fragrant. And, and I mean, what's interesting is sort of the precision with which he can identify the smells. And perhaps this has to do with Sufi mysticism and other things, but, but it's not just um, fetid. Um, an archaeological example that, I, that we mentioned there that we don't get into is... Um, Sort of mephitic gases in the in the meander uh, river valley along the meander river valley that 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 don't really smell that much, but the effect would be death if you were to if you were to smell them for for too long. And so that is is interesting because it's sort of a different problem in that it's not really the the pleasure or pain that you well it is the pain it's it's not really sort of the the what do you call it the fragrant or fetid uh, 
meaning of the smell. It's it's sort of an even more embodied problem of having, well, of dying if you smell too much. <laughs> it's a good, I didn't answer your question. It's a good question. I, I should think more about, about it. Hello, I'm Sofia Chaborski. I'm a second year PhD student in classical archaeology, and I'd like to continue the train of thought about smell. Um, you mentioned, or it was kind of a pervasive theme throughout um, your smell article, that ancient smells are more durable um, than we think of them today. And I was wondering if you could unpack that and, um, in conjunction, thinking about the cause of smells and how those are used as um, historical events. Yeah. So I, I think I can at least begin to answer the question. I, one of the problems that we have as, as, say, I don't know, people in American academia thinking about smell is that most of us don't have a very sophisticated taxonomy of smell. Um, we, we don't have this, even in terms of, 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 of lexical items, we don't have this rich vocabulary to, to talk to each other with more or less uh, specificity in the way that we do with, with colors, for example. But um, but there there have been, of course, and there are communities in the world, including in, in my native Colombia, that have had quite sophisticated ways of encoding cultural and moral, um, uh, let's say, meaning through smell and with smell, and more than cultural and moral, even sort of spatial ideas through smell. Um, I think that that the that the pervasive notion that smell is, is, is very furtive and fleeting is also a little bit of a cultural construct. Uh, and and um, in, in, the case of, in the cases that I studied, um, the, the, the sources of, of smell were, were still present, even though the supposed causes for the smell being there went back many, many, many generations, what we would call, I don't know, perhaps millennia or, or more. Um, so in, in those cases, uh, yeah, the origin of the smell was still present in the landscape. Um, and I think that some of this is, is still the case. I think in, in many of the caves of the, of the meander, those, um, those gases that kill are still, are still part of the landscape. Ben Anderson again. Um, it's let's stay with smell. Uh, so it's a, a kind of. I mean, the relationship between smell and time is not necessarily under theorized in more contemporary um, or let's say modern European letters, right? Because there is the very. I mean, it's, it's under theorized, but it's it's there's an ever present cliche almost about the ability of a fleeting, furtive smell to trigger a deep memory. Sure. Right? I mean, that's obviously, this comes up with Proust, and is, and is an experience that I, I've had personally, right? That there's the, the very strange um, moment of familiarity when uh, you become aware of a scent, and you take a lot of time to try and figure out where you know it from. And when you hit upon it, it's something surprising and in some ways very evocative. But that's, a, I suppose, a different temporal structure entirely. It's another way of configuring the relationship between scent and memory, um, but one that, or 
requires linking two discrete and relatively brief um, moments in time as opposed to uh, establishing a, a sort of a, a continuity. In other words, you would never claim in that um, structure to be able to say something that you didn't know previously about the past on the basis of Sure, it's very personal. It's personal, exactly. It's about um, uh, excavating something that you had forgotten about um, in your own experience. So just since you've spent time thinking about it, is that is the, that distinct way of um, constructing the relationship that, that, that I know and that we have as kind of a trope um, in contemporary and modern um, the European literature, also something that has classical analogs, or are we dealing with a really you know, too distinct and, in some ways, um, uh, sort of discrete uh, ways of configuring the relationship between smell and memory? Yeah. No, I think I think it has classical analogs. What you're describing, I I can't from the top of my head think of an example. I think what what doesn't have modern analogs that much in our community are are Communities of people who think they can, uh, say, say, transpersonally identify a, a smell and, and relate it to a historical moment. I think that is less common among us. Um, the, the sort of olfactory expertise that would allow somebody to, to know precisely the date of an object. We have similar things in the, in the case of, I think, wines is the obvious example that sommeliers Supposedly, or, or 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 truly, can can um, can uh, detect a specific um, gear and a specific valley and, and a specific terroir or whatever. Um, I I I I tried to give some examples of this in one of those two articles with experts claiming that they can identify not just the antiquity but the origin of certain metals through olfactory means. I think. That we're getting to something similar to sommelier, so just actual sensorial pedantry. <laughs> and, uh, and but it is it is interesting in terms of the community who's willing to say, "Cool, I I believe you." <laughs> and and I've seen I've seen, I mean I've seen archaeologists, contemporary archaeologists, do similar things. So I've seen people taste dirt, and and certainly anybody who's worked with bone has seen people. Put bones and stones on their tongue and stuff like that. That is, that is, uh, well, supposedly a foolproof method of like just knowing whether this thing is worthy of investigation or not. And with mud brick, I've seen people lick just the trench. So, <laughs> so I think <laughs> I'm not naming names <laughs> because I'm prudent. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, I think, absolutely right um, that smell has been neglected. But are we supposed to now insert it back into like the whole sensory experience, or does it do something different either for the ancients, or are we to imagine it for us as well? I guess I'm. What do you mean, something different? I don't so understand. I'm thinking about how, so for example, Pausanias uses sound also as a way. For example, at Marathon of saying at night you can hear the horses yeah. and the men fighting. This connects us to the past in some way. And do you think he would use sound and smell and or the, the people that he's reporting on also would use them in different ways? In different ways from to us? To connect to the past, that they would use them separately. 
or are we supposed to imagine it as a complete sort of sensorial experience that would incorporate both and that both sort of act together? Yeah, so it's, it's again, an interesting question and in some ways a difficult question. I think that a lot of the more programmatic theoretical work on the archaeology of the senses uh, has claimed that, well, that any archaeology is sensorial. And in a certain banal way, true. I mean, we have bodies and, and that there's no way to avoid having a body and, and doing this. I think how to incorporate the, the investigation of, of, of these types of senses uh, is, is more complicated. And I think, well, I, perhaps this is a lame answer, but I think there are two things that we can do. One is just being aware that it, this is that it's possible. This is susceptible of investigation. That we could actually try to think about how people encoded um, cultural information through through smell. Um, and then the other thing I think that that is needed, certainly in the case of classical antiquity, is just more 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 fine grained case studies of how this was happening. Um, I, I think the, the 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 richer and more interesting way to do it is not smell by smell by smell, and and there's that series of of books that is being recently edited, and I think that's just the wrong way to do it, to do the smell and taste and touch whatever. I, I think that's that's just wrong. Um, I think it's more more interesting to think about domains of sensorial experience, and so you could think about about athletic activity or something like that and 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 do it synesthetically all of all of what you're what you're describing as not as a way of recreating the sensorial experience but as a way of of trying to understand ah uh, a, a richer synesthetic environment which we investigate um i think that the more ex that very exciting uh archaeological work has happened in 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 mesoamerica Partly because the type of evidence is very different from the type of evidence that we find in in, in classical antiquity. There's 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 some text. There's very rich visual evidence that seems to be obsessed with encoding smell uh, senses visually, and of course there's a lot of ethnographic material that, for political and other reasons, in 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 Mesoamerica it's okay to use <laughs> sort of ethnographic material in different ways to try to get at this sensorial. Um, universe. And so I think we as classicists would learn from looking more at what the Mesoamericanists are doing with the census. Uh, do you want more smells or mountains? I want what you want. Okay. <laughs> um, let's go with mountains then for this round. Um, <laughs> in reference to animate mountains, um, we, we got at this a little bit yesterday, um, but I was curious as to what aspect of the mountain you found most sort of fundamental or quintessential to its animism. Um, is it its rootedness or its uh, materiality? And um, do you have an interpretation of maybe where that sort of quintessence um, of the mountain being resides? Um, and um, if you do, like, does it have parts that, that are extricable? And... Um, can it be divided to a point where it's no longer animate? Cool question. Um, so, I 
I mean, I, I don't know. I first got into this uh, uh, when I was writing my dissertation because um, I was reading Ovid and, and there was that business of, of Mount Tomolos being a judge. And then as I read a little bit about Mount Tomolos, there was what I think is a, a clash between different understandings of that mountain in particular with some people, as often is the case, dismissing all of the animism as metaphorical some people taking it seriously, and some people describing the sorts of events that the mountain sort of required to 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 have human mountain interaction. Um, I I think that the best way to to approach this is through a combination of of, of archaeological and textual evidence, because the textual evidence, as I said yesterday, gives you specificity, which is which is which would be hard to get without the text, but it, but it, but it's always um, susceptible of being dismissed as metaphorical. Everybody can say, well, it's just poetry, or 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 they're just primitive people, or something like that. Whereas the archaeological evidence does show you, well, what people were doing with the mountain. I think that those um, that the rock cut inscriptions of people saying mountain hear me or or thank you for hearing me i think that's much harder to dismiss as admit it's harder to say well he didn't mean it <laughs> it's like he's just a poet that wrote in the vocative mountain yeah. I, I, that's unlikely so it's not probably the case um what made the mountain alive and how it communicated with people can also be explored in terms of performance and so in Mount Molos, there, there's both textual evidence and epigraphic evidence that that singing processions were really important. And I don't really know whether this is related to the fact that the mountain was considered a, mu a good musical judge, but that the but that the music was happening in the mountains and that people associated music with that mountain in particular is that's pretty strong evidence for that. Um, whether the mountain can be, yeah. So I, I think uh, Andrew Ramage yesterday was was uh, critical of the fact that I was combining hills and mountains, which which is true. I mean, I was like, like maybe maybe there should be a very positivist limit, and if it's not above a thousand meters, then it's not a mountain. And or or, or maybe we should maybe we should have, and and then we could only get the the really great mountains. Anyway, um. I think that the that of the mountains that I am interested in, this they're not so easily subdivided to the point where you can't see them anymore. But of course, in in quarrying landscapes and in really exploitative landscapes, that does happen. I mean, that does happen. And I think the most sort of brutal example of this in the class in classical antiquity is is of course the Rio Tinto mines in Spain that were that were completely destroyed, and there's this, there's explicit textual evidence of saying we actually destroyed all the mountains. Um, that's all I have to say. <laughs> um, Kathleen again. Uh, before I ask my question, I'll just defend Mark Bradley and Shane Butler, um, whose series I think you were referring to. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, um, but the uh, the first volume in the series is Synesthesia and the Ancient Senses, and I think it actually grew out of this project. Um, 
that Shane had, who, and he was just here last week, and he, he really wants to emphasize that we have to think about these things synesthetically. Right, but he then proceeded to give us a series of... No, I think the idea was he realized there were so many people working on the senses in the ancient world, and he wanted to, you know, a place where they could all come together. Um, and I think he tries to emphasize that they should be putting their specific sense into a, a wider framework. But um, I, I agree with your point entirely that we shouldn't be thinking about these things in isolation. Um, Sorry, can I yeah, interrupt? Yeah, of course. I, I think that one thing that would be really, imp I mean, I think that what's bad about doing it that way is that you sort of um, uh, reify these modes of experience that are not universal and are not necessarily at least the division is not universal and I think that one of the challenges for us and also for the Mesoamericanists mm -hmm. is to try to think about literally other senses that we have that we don't think about mm -hmm. I wrote an amazing paper that never <laughs> published <laughs> called uh, Vertigo Shivers and Funk about thermoception and and sort of other type of proprioception and other types mm -hmm. of, of sensorial experience that I think, well, I, it would be weird to have a book on thermoception, but maybe Shane can, can, can go for it. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the, you know, the, we do talk about Aristotle, you know, having the, you know, thermoception, proprioception, equilibrioception. Um, so it is in there. And I think trying to get at what, how the Greeks actually did and the Romans do, you know, how they actually did divide, um, you know, their spectrum of the sensorial uh, is important and is being addressed because it, it is clear that, you know, they do have this conception of taste and there are very specific um, vocabularies associated with each of the, of the senses. And so I think it's, it's really interesting the point that Rebecca brought up about this good, bad, um, yeah. smell thing because that's throughout ancient literature they they qualify it in this very binary way whereas with taste they don't well sure but I think I think what we need to keep our sort of mind on is that there are different regimes of sensorial experience in antiquity that it, it, it is dangerous to speak about Roman versions of the senses I mean what you have is different people experiencing the world differently huge political asymmetries that that are built partly on sensorial experience and are built partly on, on limiting sensorial experience or, or, or enhancing sensorial experience. Um, I would be interested in, in, in trying or in learning more. For example, this ontological question. Be hard but interesting to explore in the Amazon or in or Mesoamerica. What does this mean, really? I mean, what is, what is the archaeological um, or even the, the, the just material correlate of the possibility of becoming a jaguar or being jaguar. Uh, is there an archaeological correlate of that? And there, there's, there's interesting clues. I mean, there, there are these wonderful Maya burials where I think a king or a prince or something has, has uh, uh, jaguar paws and stuff like that. Um, it'd be interesting to, to try to think what is the sensorial dimension of in, in a community of people who think that that we don't share the same nature, but we share culture. Be really interesting. I don't have to ask a question. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. no um, I guess picking up on Kathleen's 
point. We've been working with this edited, <laughs> the edited series, and I think part of the project is to get away from the ocular centrality that sure. or ocular the tyranny of the eye. The tyranny <laughs> of the eye that you bring out in your own chapter, and so I'm wondering, building on what you just what you just brought up, especially with the Mesoamerican examples of synesthesia. Um, could you build on and elaborate the kind of pitfalls for these um, sensorial, the sensorial scholarship? And I mean, it, there seems to be kind of this tension between thinking that incorporating the senses gives us a more direct access to the past or a different lens. And I'm wondering if that is, um, yeah, a particular challenge that you face in in this this work. I think that that. The, the pit first the pitfalls I think the pitfalls or the limitations that I see most clearly are two the the more theoretically engaged people um, have had trouble pointing to examples and I think some of the best examples are those involved in feasting say in, in, in feasting in Crete there's sort of a rich body of evidence that helps you at least envision some of the many synesthetic experiences that these people had with with huge amounts of data, faunal data and archaeological data and visual data and stuff like that. Um, but coming up with the rich examples is a challenge. Archaeologically, it is a challenge to, to know how to how to put this all together. In the Mesoamerican case, by contrast, there are beautiful and very rich examples, and a lot of it has 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 been done through uh, visual records, as opposed to through primarily archaeological evidence. And I'm and I'm thinking specifically about uh, Houston Stewart and Taube's Memory of Bones, which I think is a wonderful book, and it's 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 incredibly imaginative. Um, it's not very heavy on the archaeology. It's really sort of this tour de force of, of, of visual interpretation with enormous amount of familiarity with ethnographic data and even with the text. So it's a, it's a great book, but it's again not for the archaeologists. It's like, well, how do we incorporate archaeological data into this problem? It's hard. And I think that perhaps the only way to do it is to just be aware that it's a possibility, that we need to be thinking about this and, and we need to be thinking about whatever it is we interact with um, in, in more holistic sensorial terms. Uh, I wanted to turn more to something you mentioned in your talk yesterday, but also in your um, archaeophilia paper, and that's the ethics of interactions with the past. Mm -hmm. um, and you, in the archaeophilia um, chapter you highlighted the case study of um, Escavelislav and um, sequencing the Aboriginal Australian DNA. Um, and you write that our own ideas about things that we consider meaningful indices of antiquity are not natural or universal as, as a possibility. Um, are there particular indices or, or, or ways that we are currently thinking about the past that you didn't highlight in this paper that, particularly with reference to smell and perceptions of the past, in that regard, we have to kind of navigate and, and what's your what's your take on how to do that? Say, say again the question, sorry. Sure. <laughs> um, are there, so I guess what 
Um, are there particular cases you're worried about where we as maybe Western archaeologists, anthropologists are considering something a meaning, meaningful index of the past that is dangerously not universal, kind of like the case study with DNA. But I guess, are there any particularly in relation to the census? I know with the mountain. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I have I have one example comes to my head that is that is complicated and and um, so in this conference that Ben and I held in Bogota, one of our speakers was uh, was a Colombian Indian uh, from from Southern Colombia who who um, grew up and was born in in one of the richest archaeological landscapes in Colombia called San Agustin, and the place is famous because it has it has a monolithic uh, statuary that is some of the biggest statuary not in Peru and not in Mexico. So it's, so it's or in Mexico, Guatemala. Uh, giant monolith, uh, two meters high, three meters high. Um, and the archaeological explanation of those things, the contemporary modern archaeological explanation of those things would say that Victoriano and, and the NASA people, of which he is one, have nothing to do with the production of those objects. He, who's a who's a healer, a, a, a medicinal expert, not only disagrees, not only thinks that that they are part of his of his people, and he actually identifies people like like himself, so healers in those stones, uh, but also his engagement with them uh, happens at an olfactory level, and he can smell things that those that those statues did, it is very hard to incorporate that into an archaeological, <laughs> or even, in a, well, I, I just don't know how to incorporate that into academic archaeological discourse. Um, but it was interesting because when I was writing The Smell of Time, I talked to Victoriano, and Victoriano was telling me how he was approaching the stones and how he was making sense of the stones. And so he said, well, it's mostly through smell that I know what they do. And it was weird because I was writing that paper and I was like, hmm. Tell me more. Um, and it's a little bit, in some ways, analogous, at least from somebody like me who's completely ignorant about this, it's analogous to the Vliacelevi, like very, very specific encoding of what type of, 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 of smell corresponds to this or that type of, activity, of human activity that led to the construction of the stones. I think ethically, it is challenging in Colombia. I, I mean, that specific political asymmetry between the indigenous communities and, and the, the government and the academics is enormous. Um, those people had, have had little say until recently on what to do with the stones among which they live. And part of the reason they have little say is because, well, our archaeologists, uh, because we have said, well, they're not, they didn't really make them, so they shouldn't really own them. Uh, but it's, it's a good example of of the ethical uh, difficulties involved in this. Hi, Sophia again. Um, I would like to continue talking about the archaeophilia article. Um, and you say in your conclusion that our investigation may show that we are one distinct, now dominant uh, voice in what has been a long, fractious, and continuous dialogue to make sense of the traces of the past in our midst. Um, what about the other non-dominant 
current antiquarian voices. Uh, you treated with great respect um, ancient hobbyists or antiquarians who don't fall in the stray boat Pausanias professional track. What do we do with um, people like that now, particularly um, when they are often collectors and involved in the black market antiquities trade and looting and those sorts of other ethical issues? Um, well, I think to begin with, we should recognize that the networks of knowledge are less pure and, and less discreet than we sometimes imagine that collectors and looters and, um, and sort of vernacular antiquarians and just people who know are part of our own networks of knowledge. And so I think that that is an important recognition that we should all acknowledge that that is the case. And I'll give you an example. When, when, when I was part of the Aphrodisias Regional Survey and we were trying to find extra urban sites, I think we found none that was not pointed to us by a shepherd. And so there was vast knowledge that, 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 com that completely informed our investigation of the aphrodisiac landscape. Um, I think if, if we were to do this again, it would have been, it would be uh, not, not just prudent, but also proper to, to sort of think about our relationship with, with, with the local experts uh, of the past. Um, that doesn't really answer your question for looters, but, but I, I guess that I would say that the first thing is to recognize that looters and, and cultural collectors form part of our networks and that they're not sort of somehow, um, well, something different, so completely different from us that, that we also participate in this somehow. Ben, do you want to ask one last question? I think that would be... Sure, I have a really good story to tell. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to follow up on uh, Sophia's question, um, this is Ben Anderson again. I have a distant ancestor who was the first governor of Rhode Island, whose name was uh, Benedict Arnold, um, and is also the descendant of the famous Revolutionary War general. And he uh, lived in Newport, and he had a farm on which he built a mill. Um, and it's mentioned in the deed, um, the, 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 the deed to the land that he had constructed this mill there. Uh, and it's still there when you go to Newport and the sort of the town green. Um, it's a tower, basically. It's a round tower. Um, in the mid-20th century, I think it was a Danish archaeologist determined that this was, in fact, um, a Viking church and was a record of the um, sort of Viking colonization of uh, the Atlantic coast in the early Middle Ages. And more recently, this has been sort of disproved to the um, satisfaction of the scholarly community. But more recently, a, a man who's independently wealthy has worked out that it's in fact a horologion that was constructed by Sir Francis Drake when he landed in Newport and spent, I think, about six months there. I didn't build any sort of permanent 
um, settlement that did build a clock tower. And Sky can show you, you know, where the light shines through certain windows at certain times of the day that this works to tell time. But the amazing thing about this guy is that he has money, and so he's rented out one of the storefronts on the town green in Newport and has established a, a museum. And it relates the entirety of the story. And when people come and visit the site, um, this guy will often, well, I mean, really, when people just go for a stroll um, in Newport in the weekend, this guy will come out and explain to people what the, um, and then bring them into his museum. So that's a very different kind of hobbyist. Um, and maybe a little bit more in the direction of what Sophia is describing is than what you went to with the sort of the, the issue of the local informant. Right. In other words, how, where do we draw the line between what we understand to be a really deep kind of um, uh, local familiarity and intimacy um, with a landscape, which is often what we think of when we think of sort of alternative approaches to the past, and you know the white guy who has a lot of money in a theory. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I'm not really sure what to do with your guy in particular, <laughs> but, um, but I think that part of the, of the, of the possible duty is, is to engage and to, to actually try to have dialogue about what the past is and how we should investigate it and should it just be a question of money, which in many ways it is. I mean, we all have money to go to to the Mediterranean or wherever it is we go. It's not that whatever, Newport is full of Greeks and Turks excavating the, the past there. So we are part of those asymmetries and, and we are in some ways a white guy with a theory. Um, so I think that that I'm interested in engaging, and I'm interested if, if 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 Ben and I continue doing these these conferences about the past in things. I want more people who take their own ideas about the past seriously, like that guy, or like Victoriano Piñacue, who's very serious about his statues, or um, or the shepherds who like the the castles in 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 Caria. Um, I think I think part of our, our duty is just to to try to establish dialogue with different ideas about the past. Wonderful. I think that's a perfect point on which to uh, conclude. So my thanks to uh, to Felipe, to all of the participants in the podcast, and of course to the listeners for your attention. A round of applause for everybody. been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. Thanks for listening.